What a great job. You know, it matters the songs you pick because that's going to stick with you all week. I, I, I just know it. And so I really appreciate uh, the excellent music we sing and exalt the name of Christ with. I forgot to mention that I have some special guests today. My sister-in-law, Dr. Beth Tarkington, and my nephew, Thad, are here. And we were partying big time yesterday. We celebrated uh, Dr. Tarkington's 91st birthday and 28th birthday. We just had a great day yesterday. So I want you to know you're loved and you have made our individual lives so much better. So thank you. Love you so much. We are in First Peter. We've gotten back there. And today we're going to be looking at the ambassador's management. Doesn't sound very exciting, but it is. It's the stewardship of spiritual gifts. And it's part one because this is a very, very important topic. And so I'll show you why it is here shortly. But uh, we need to get a good handle on this. Now, this is a familiar face to some of you. Some of it can create anger. Some of it, that's my man. And just this week, Rush Limbaugh was uh, highlighted in the State of the Union message where he received the Presidential Medal of Freedom. And he has been diagnosed with stage 4 lung cancer. But he's been an icon on the radio for a number of years. A lot of people love him. A lot of people hate him. And one of the reasons people hate him is that he uses this expression quite often, talent on loan from God. (laughs) I like it. But the question I have to ask you, is that a true statement? Are talents on loan from God? And I would say that that is a true statement, especially when we get in the realm of spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts are on loan from God. So we'll look at the uh, ambassador's uh, management of these spiritual gifts, part one. Before we do, can we just bow for a word of prayer because this is important. Heavenly Father, thank you for the excellentness of your nature and your being, that we're able to worship you and exalt you through the songs that are proclaimed this morning. Thank you for our choir and those that minister to us in song, that we were able to exalt you and give you your rightful first place the preeminent place. Now, Father, thank you for your word. And I pray that as we expound the word today, that we'd learn from it your wisdom and your love that is woven in every word. And that as a result, we'll be able to do it justice that we'd understand, understand so as to do what you tell us to do. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you. Now, just to review, uh, in First Peter, I always go over this. This is the reason that Peter wrote this in 1 Peter 5.12, towards the end of the book, he says, I have written you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Pressure's coming to this church in Central Asia. Pressure's coming to this church in Eastern North Carolina, and we're to stand firm in the grace of God. Last week, we looked at uh, the ambassador's madness, the craziness, as we looked at the theology of suffering. And really, I've classified it as part one because we're going to go look at some more. And I feel like I just scratched the surface. And it is so overwhelming to understand the theology of suffering because we all suffer and we all have to deal with it. 
and getting our minds wrapped around it is not an easy thing. When we looked at it last week, we highlighted that God sometimes uses suffering in our lives to refine us. So in the, in, in, for the saint, when the Lord refines us, we're in that crucible and he's taking that dross off the top. He's there. And sometimes we're in the forger's fire. He's trying to make us stronger, able to stand the wiles of the devil. He's trying to make us stronger. And so sometimes adversity comes, but he is there. And then sometimes God places us in situations, whether it's work or in the community or wherever, that we're in the arena and everyone's looking at how we're going to take a stand. He's there. And we all have the dark souls of our night when we're uh, just alone with God and we're wrestling with the suffering that we're going through. And the truth is, he is there. We might know the why. We might not know the why of what we're going through. And that's really what happened in the book of Job. Everyone was trying to explain the why of suffering. But the conclusion of the book of Job is he desires that we completely and without waver trust him and rely on him. That's the lesson of Job. Last Sunday, my wife Joe and I, our daughter and son-in-law, my, my son and daughter-in-law lived in Columbia for a number of years when he was stationed at Shaw Air Force Base. And we had received news that their dear friend, Brooke, had passed Several months earlier, her husband, this is a young couple, uh, they have three children. The young uh, husband was taking care of his wife. He says, I'm going to go out for a, a bike ride. He, he rides road bikes. And was at a T intersection, standing there, let cars pass and all that, and a car wiped him out, killed him. The wife had been suffering from cancer for a number of years, and finally, Sunday, she went be with the Lord. And I was not very close to these people, but I was overwhelmed at the suffering that this family was experiencing. And I was overwhelmed that these three young children now were going to be parentless. They were going to be orphans. And you just try to wrap your head around it. Why? And I looked at the book of Job. And the answer to to these deep questions is, I'm going to trust him. I'm going to rely on him. I'm going to count on him. Even though I don't know all the answers, that's what I'm going to do. And so we're going to resume um, studying about uh, suffering here. Because when we look at chapter 4 here that we're in today, verses 1 through 6 that we looked at last week gave us instructions in the midst of suffering. And today we're going to look at some related instructions to knowing that we're in this suffering, some instructions that Peter gives us. And then he's going to resume his instructions in the in the heat of battle, in the suffering. So we're going to come back several weeks from now. So as we examine the text here in First Peter verses 7 through 11, we looked at, and, and Billy, thank you for doing such a great job. I love having our, our um, deacons up here. I, I just have the greatest respect for these men and their willingness to read the word of God and lead us in prayers is something that I, I'm excited about. And I, Billy, thank you for reading it. But the passage starts and it says, the end of all things is near. Well, that sounds kind of fatal. Well, when in the New Testament um, use of this word end, it is never used as a chronological end. 
but rather as a fulfillment, a realization, a consummation. If you want to translate it, it says, the time has come. So it's not the end of all things. It, the time has come. So Peter is saying here, the time has come. Things, things are getting close. Therefore, and so therefore is referring to this end. The time has come, and this is what he tells us. He says, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love because love covers a multitude of sins. He says, be hospitable uh, to love one another without complaint. And each one has received the special gift employed in serving one another as a good steward of the manifold grace of God. So we see there's four B's that Peter tells us in this little aside amid suffering. The first one is be of sound, be sound and sober for the purpose of prayer. You're going to need to be praying as the suffering starts, and we need to be praying all the time, but particularly in this time of adversity. Be sober and sound for prayer. The next one is be fervently loving one another. Love covers a multitude of sins. Don't sweat the small stuff, he says. Let our love be beyond the, the petty. And really care for one another. How vital that is that we love one another. All men will know you're disciples of the Lord Jesus if you have what? Love for one another. And then he says, be hospitable and care for one another without complaint. Hospitality is huge. Extend yourself for one another. And then he tells us, be a good steward of your special gift. As we look, it goes on, it says in verse uh, 10, as each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. That's talking about this stewardship. If you remember, I had that uh, cross, the disciples cross, and we talked about the vertical relation, the horizontal relationship. We have our worship of God. He has gives us his word. We have the work of stewardship, and then we have the work and the witness that we have one to another. Christ in you, the hope of glory. But one of those things when we look at the work of stewardship is our stewardship of time, talent, temple, treasure, and truth. And so we're going to look at the stewardship of those, not really talents, but rather they are gifts that are entrusted to us. And that's exactly what uh, Peter is saying here. As each one of you has received a special gift. That word gift comes means in the Greek is the word charisma. The plural is charismata. And we have our friends in other churches that we call their charismatic because they put such reliance on some of the gifts. We're going to talk about that in coming weeks, about some of those and maybe the misuses of it and where we our position is on it. But charisma, if, if we break it down, the word, the portion of the word car, C-H-A-R, char, deals with joy. The word charis is grace and charismata or charisma, gift or gifts. So really, literally, it's a joyous, gracious gift. God gives us these gifts, the charismata, to us and they're to be viewed as joyous and they're to be viewed as gracious and they are gifts that are bestowed. Peter goes in further and he says, 
Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now we see that Peter divides these gifts into two main areas. One deals with speaking and the other with serving. And that's a great way to divide the gifts. When we get into the individual gifts that each of you have, we'll talk about that. And so this is a great time to take a little aside to discuss what spiritual gifts are, that we get a handle on this, because they're often misused and they're often misunderstood. And that's where we're going to take a little aside. We're going to, for the next couple of weeks, we're going to look at it. When we look at spiritual gifts, Paul tells us a lot about spiritual gifts. He says, now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be ignorant. He tells us in verse 12, Corinthians 12. Concerning spiritual gifts, I don't want you to be ignorant. This word ignorant comes from the Greek word agno, agno eo, which means, which is kind of the root for agnostic. An agnostic doesn't believe in God because they don't know if God exists. So the word ignorant here means unaware or uninformed. You don't know. You just don't know. And so Paul is telling us, I don't want you to not know about spiritual gifts. And there's other things that Paul tells us that he wants us not to be ignorant of. For example, in Romans 11, he says, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery lest you be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Understanding what's happening with the Jews in this transition period from going from Judaism to the church age, what about Israel? Well, there's a partial hardening, a blindness that has taken place in them. And Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant of it because God's going to resume his program for Israel. And that's part of my plan. I'm working through the church now. But there's a blindness that has occurred. And for any of you who have dealt with uh, Jewish friends, um, there's a blindness. We just read the scriptures this morning. It speaks, it, it tells of Christ in the Old Testament. They don't see it. But Paul tells us, I don't want you to be ignorant of it. That's part of the plan right now. Understand it. So God's plans for Israel, we're not to be ignorant of. Here's another one. He tells us, and we hear this when we go to a funeral. He says, but I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, unless you sorrow as those who have no hope. We have a funeral, and it's sad. You're standing by the graveside. Our hearts are breaking. And yet... We can mourn, but not to be sorrow as those who have no hope. We're going to be with that loved one if they're in Christ one day. And that the dead in Christ will rise, and we who are alive will meet him in the air, and we'll meet the Lord Jesus in the air. Speaking of the rapture, the events that are moments away, imminent, they can happen. And so Paul is saying, I don't want you to be ignorant of this. And so with these three things, you have to say, these are pretty important for the church. If he says, I don't want you to be a dumbhead about this, get this. These are three important things. And I appreciate that, that he 
gives it pretty, he lays it out, because sometimes I'm ignorant of these things. Now here's a good definition of what a spiritual gift is. It's a divine enablement by the Holy Spirit given to every believer for the building of the church and the glory of God. It's a divine enablement, meaning that God gives it for the purpose of building his church and for the glory of God. Now look at verse in in, um, the book of Ephesians. has a lot to say on this. And it tells us, but to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. So if you remember, we talked about Jesus when he died. He descended into Sheol. He, he preached to those there and took those uh, saints that were in Abraham's bosom and led them took the captives free. And Peter had written to us about that. But when he ascended, he gave gifts. He's going to give his Holy Spirit, and through the Holy Spirit, he's going to give us manifold gifts. And that's why we're studying. That's why we're going to look at these, because that is his plan. Now, there's four passages that address spiritual gifts in the New Testament. One first Peter, and basically Peter divides it into speaking gifts and serving gifts. Ephesians 4, uh, Romans 12, and 1 Corinthians 12. These are the four main areas that speak about gifting. And as I said, Peter divides them. So when we look at these passages, we can classify them a little more discreetly. In Ephesians 4, those deal with what we call ministerial gifts. Think minister or offices. Romans 12 deals with motivational gifts, the gifts that he gives to us to motivate us and to equip us to do the work of ministry. And then 1 Corinthians 12 deal with manifestational gifts, gifts that God gives as the church needs them at the time. And then we see that in the ministerial gifts from Ephesians, and he says this, He gave some as apostles and some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ. So these are the ministerial gifts. There are four ministerial gifts, or five if you interpret it one way or another. If you notice, he says some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastor-teachers. So we view this sometimes as pastor hyphen teacher, that it's a similar role. We'll talk about teaching as a gift another time. But these are what we call offices or uh, gift offices. And now the word apostle means sent one. The word prophet is one who tells forth God's word as well as foretells God's word. Evangelist is one who brings good news. Think of the gospel. And then the pastor teacher is one who shepherds through teaching. Now in Ephesians 2.19, he says, Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with saints and members of the household of God. That's the church. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, 
Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. So what we see here is that the apostles and the prophets had a very special office. Now, when we look at the word apostle, this office gift, there was a requirement that the uh, apostle have seen the resurrected Christ and specifically chosen by the Lord to author or share the foundational New Testament canon. They were going to put together the word of God. These apostles, these 12, and then there were more than 12 in that first century. They were given miraculous powers to validate and authenticate his teaching. So the office of apostle was limited to the first century. You'll hear guys claim on TV, you say, I'm Apostle Jones or whatever. That's really not an accurate interpretation of what we mean by this office of apostle. They claim it, and then you have to like watch out what they do. The second one is prophet. And this office gift was uh, in Scripture. It was uh, given uh, for the validation and the proclamation um, message that they did not have uh, a completed Scripture at the time. So God used the prophets to communicate his word and... It, and to include the first century. And so these were ones that were uh, given the ability to communicate the word of God. Jesus is referred to as a prophet. He's also referred to as an apostle. The apostle Paul is referred to as an apostle. He's also referred to as a prophet. So they had this responsibility to communicate the word of God authentically, authentic, with authority and authentically to us. And they were given gifts, uh, signs, to authenticate it, to validate it. And so we see that. But this is an important point. Since the foundation has been set, the office is no longer needed. But the gifts would be validated. For example, when we deal with, we're going to talk about prophecy, that you have the gift of prophecy. Although you might have the gift of prophecy, doesn't mean that you're a prophet in the office. Meaning that you're, that's, that, that there's no need for the office of prophet today. It's been fulfilled. But you can have the gift of prophecy to proclaim truths from God. The choir singing forth the excellencies of Christ is a prophetic type ministry. They're not prophets, but they prophesy truth. And so I, it's a little bit of a distinction. It's one of those kind of theological nuances, but recognize that the office of apostle and prophet have been concluded. There's no need to, since the word of God is complete. It goes on. It says, And he gave some of his apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. This gives us the why. Why do we have these gifts? Equipping of the saints in the church. To build up the church for works of service. The body of Christ is going to be strong as we exercise these gifts. One of the roles of the pastor teacher is to teach the word of God so that you'll be equipped to understand how to apply the word of God. The evangelist is there to communicate and to present to you uh, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. So we respond to it for, to be reconciled to a holy God because our sins have separated us from him. 
So this is the building up of the church. These are why these gifts are given. And then when we get into the motivational gifts and the manifestational gifts in coming weeks, we're going to see how God uses that. Now, in two weeks, since next week we're going to have the WMU Sunday, and it, that is going to be awesome. But in two weeks, we're going to continue this. We're going to look at the uh, motivational gifts and the minister, the manifestational gifts, because these are worth looking into, and you'll enjoy this study. You'll, and then you'll, I want you to find out what your gift is, and we'll talk about that in a second. Now, there are seven important things that I want you to know about spiritual gifts, and this is kind of to whet your appetite for those coming weeks. Really, when you think about the office gifts, as far as evangelist and uh Pastor, teacher, and those are the offices, think offices of the church. Uh, when we talk about those motivational gifts and the manifestational gifts, those are gifts that you have. And so I'm getting ready to look at it. But let's take a look at some of these. These are pretty interesting. Every believer has at least one gift. Some have more, but no one has all. When we, when we get talking about those gifts... Everyone has at least one, and that's given to you at the point of salvation. Okay? And that's what this says. The Holy Spirit decides what gift one gets, and they are irrevocable and permanent. You've got it. He's got it for you. And some of you don't even know what I'm talking about. So what are my gifts? And that's what I want. That's going to be the fun thing about this. You're going to discover what your unique gifting is that God has already given to you, and that you don't might not even know that you have. How about this? One cannot earn or work for a spiritual gift, but one can develop that gift. It's a sin to waste the gift, okay? If God has given you a gift and you don't know that you have it, you don't use it, that's not holding him in very high esteem. So we're going to take a time to discover what that gift is. Exercising our gifts will help us develop spiritual maturity. As we put it into practice, say, well, this is what, this is what I'm made for. Using our gifts in the place of our giftedness is a source of great joy, grace, and contentment in the Lord. Remember, we looked at that word charismata, joy, grace, gift. When you use it in the place of your giftedness, this is awesome. I'm, I'm, this is where I'm supposed to be. And we'll help you to discover that. Spiritual gifts are given and used, not for one's own use, but for the church and to glorify God. Keep that in mind, recognizing that you've been given a spiritual gift for a purpose. And then Peter tells us, and he says, you know, whoever speaks, whoever serves. So that in all things, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, whom belong the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. That by giving you the gifts, you're going to put them into practice. And this church is going to be humming along because it works by design. God's an awesome designer. And, and when we're, we're, we're uh, functioning on all cylinders, man, the church is just humming. Because we're operating in his design. And God's glorified in that. So it behooves us to discover what our gifts are. Now, does this... Illustrate how you sometimes feel. Are you a square peg in a round hole spiritually in serving the Lord? Sometimes it might feel like that, and that's okay. Because if you don't know what your gift is, it can feel like that. You know, sometimes I'm forced into doing something that I really 
This isn't my bag. Well, we're going to help you find out what your gift is and where you can be a round peg in a round hole or a square peg in a square hole. And that's going to be exciting. Now, we um, talked about spiritual gifts, introduced it today, but I have a website here that I'm going to... It's, it's on your handout, and I want you to do this. Between now and two weeks from now, go to that website and take this spiritual gifts assessment. It's going to ask you some questions, and you don't have to be real spiritual about it, but be honest. And it's a tool. Okay? And you're going to take it, and you're going to say, that's not my gift. But then I want you to validate it. I want you to ask, ask someone very close to you. Often, your spouse, and, and your spouse will probably say, oh, that's you. You might not think so, but that's you. You might not like it. You might not like the gift. But take it and see, and then have your spouse or a good friend who knows you validate it. Yeah, that's you, man. Hey, I knew that all along. And you'll you'll be surprised to discover what it is. Now, not everybody has at least one, so you look at the rating and which one has the most. And then some have more than one, though it might be close on a couple. But answer these questions honestly and see what happens. As I said, it's a tool. It's a man-made tool. This isn't God say, this is your only gift. No, it's a tool to help discover what that is. And what I have found, I know what my gifts are, um, that as I put it into practice, I'm directed and I kind of find the ministry where I fit. Because I have been in ministries where I haven't fit. Okay, so I just say that to you, that that's the fun of walking with God. He's going to show you, this is where I want you to be. And you're going to say, this is awesome. There's relief, there's joy, there's grace in that giftedness. And when you fit where God wants you, man, there's nothing that compares to it. Now, we've talked about spiritual gifts today. And the thing about gifts, spiritual gifts, is they're automatically issued to you at conversion. You are given a gift, and what this message is about is we're going to unwrap what our gift is. We're going to take the ribbon off. We're going to take the paper. We're going to discover what our gift, because we many of us have this gift, and it's still in the package. So when I give you this survey to take, and some of these things as we discuss the next couple of weeks, we're going to take the ribbon off. We're going to pull it back and say, that's my, I knew it. I know that's my gift. And that's a wonderful thing that God has given each and every one of us. But there's another gift we need to talk about. And so as we've talked about spiritual gifts, this is applied to Christians. Our spiritual gifts are given at the point of conversion. But we need to talk about a more important gift, and that's the gift of salvation. You see, all of us have a problem. We've all rebelled against the holy God. We've shaken our fist in God's face. We do it our way. We've broken his laws. The scriptures tell us all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've broken his commandments, how to live, as Randy shared with the boys and girls about the commandments of God. They're there to show us that we are indeed lawbreakers. Have you ever told a lie? Yes. What does that make you? A liar. Have you ever stolen anything? Yeah, it wasn't much. It was candy. But, you know, uh, that makes you a thief. 
I always like this one with men. Men, have you ever looked lustfully at a woman? Uh, yeah, well, that makes you a lying, theming adulterer at heart. And we've only looked at three of the Ten Commandments. So those are things that point to us as sinners. We've broken God's commandment. As a result of sin, we're separated from God. But God was not content to allow that separation to continue. He said he sent his son, the Lord Jesus, to pay the penalty for our sins. Because the wages of our sins, the penalty of our sins, is death, separation from God. But he sent the Lord Jesus to be the payment for our sins. He came to Calvary's cross, shed his blood, because without the shedding of blood, there could be no forgiveness of sin. That was God's economy. That was his method of payment. And his blood was sinless and it was pure. And it met the righteous demands of a holy God. And so we see this sacrifice on Calvary's cross and we go, that's amazing. He took my place. Now, how do I make that gift mine? It's presented. It's here's the gift of salvation, how to be made right with God. How do I make that mine? By simple faith, I receive it. The grace of God, I receive it by faith. Lord, would you save me? Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. It's not any more complex than that. We can go into our children's area and the kids can receive that gift by simple faith. And we can go to uh, seminaries and theologians will discover nuances to this. They'll never, uh, as we say, we'll never discover the fullness of it. It's so awesome. But he offers us that gift. And all we have to do is, by faith, simple faith, Lord, I, would you save me? Call upon the name of the Lord and you'll be saved. That's the best gift. And that's the spark, starting point for all the gifts. So we're going to sing our hymn of invitation. And then these songs deal with the love of God. And when we understand what Christ did, look at that nail-pierced hair reaching down to reach for sinful man. There's no greater demonstration of love on the face of the planet than that. Every religion in the world, we try to get closer and closer to God, better and better. But we fall short, and God knows that, and he reaches down, and he pulls up sinful man, and he redeems us. He saves us. He reconciles us to himself. Oh, that love is awesome. We'll close with a hymn of invitation. And if you would like to call upon the name of the Lord today, and you want to visit with me, I'll be happy to lead you in in prayer to make that possible. If there's another need that you might have, some issue of the heart, and you want to pray about it, you can talk directly to the Lord. You want to pray with me? I'll be happy to do that as we sing the hymn of invitation. The love of God is truly amazing and awesome. It's the greatest gift that man can know, and he offers that to each and every one of us. To receive by faith. And then as we do. He gives us the grace. To have spiritual gifts. To be useful in the kingdom of God. And his work here on earth. He's not done with us yet. He's not done with the world. And he's using us to show his love. And we're going to be instruments of that. So let's pray. Father help us to learn about these. What you've given us. The spiritual gifts that we have. Help us to put them into practice. And find the great joy of exercising this gracious gift. Teach us your word. Let us delve into it and to understand what you've done for us in Christ and salvation and the gifts for uh, the saints. We love you today and we pray your blessings upon us as we dismiss in Jesus' name.
Amen.